Well, we are back to First Peter, where we left off in October, and we'll take up right where we left off, which brings us to chapter 3 and verse 18 is our text for today, which says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit." You remember that the Apostle Peter is writing to believers in Jesus Christ who are scattered throughout north-central Asia Minor. He is encouraging them to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of trials. He encourages them, number one, by reminding them of the gospel, what Christ has done for them in saving them, redeeming them from their sins, and number two, by assuring them of the glories that yet lie ahead for all those who are trusting Christ. Our text for today, verse 18 of chapter 3, is a rich gospel text. It is one of the great texts on substitutionary atonement that is found in the Bible. It is so full, actually, of gospel truth that it is difficult for me to explore it fully in one sermon. And so we are going to, by God's help and grace, consider three aspects of our text today and three more aspects next week, Lord willing. But what we are looking at today is the gospel, the very center of the Christian faith, the very heart of all the Bible. And that's why we should listen more carefully today than perhaps ever before. Young and old alike, babes in Christ as well as grandfathers and grandmothers in the Christian faith, There's something here for everyone. Ask God to give you ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to understand, to comprehend in the case of some perhaps for the first time, and to comprehend more fully that which Christ has done for us, for those of us who have been in the faith for some time. If you are outside of Christ, ask God to give you ears to hear and eyes to see. If you're unsure of your standing with God, then ask God to show you your true heart's condition. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Today we will consider these three aspects. Number one, the purpose that Peter had in view. Number two, the reality that must be addressed. And number three, the substitution that is required. We begin by noticing the purpose that Peter had in view by inserting this particular text at this place in his first epistle. The reason for his declaration. And it is found, if we emphasize two words in the first phrase, the word for that begins our text and the word also that is found there as well, for Christ also suffered, for Christ also suffered. The word for is a continuation. It tells us that Peter is continuing some thought that he has already given to us. It indicates some kind of explanation for what has gone before, perhaps some conclusion of statements that have previously been made. The word also indicates as well a previous statement. There's something here that is in addition to what has already been said. Also indicates that there's something of a parallel situation found in our text that corresponds 
to something that Peter has said before. And what is the theme, the thread that ties our text together with Peter's previous statements is the theme of suffering. Christians and their suffering. You see it in the immediately preceding verse. Verse 17, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, for Christ also suffered. Or if you back up to verse 14, you see it again. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed for Christ also suffered. It actually takes us all the way back into chapter 2. In verses 19 and following, writing to servants, For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults? You take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. And notice how here in chapter 2, he also links this to a gospel text. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. As a matter of fact, this theme of suffering was introduced clear back in chapter 1, as it was touched upon as early as verse 6, when Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Don't be terribly concerned about that, for Christ also suffered. You see how our text for today ties together this great theme of suffering, which is found all throughout the first part of Peter's epistle. (coughs) This is a reminder, actually, that great gospel texts are often found in connection with practical exhortation. I think of that great text in... Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And all of that (coughs) is given to us, this great text on the incarnation of Christ, is given to us to remind us that we should be humble like Christ was humble. Here's how all of that begins in Philippians 2. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, etc., You see how Paul goes from practical exhortation to humility, lowliness of mind, serving one another, loving others, being sensitive to others, and then holding up for us the example of Christ, but not just 
Christ as he walked upon the shores of Galilee, but a bigger theme, the whole issue of the incarnation, Christ humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The gospel is the foundation for our humility of mind. And now Peter takes up something very similar. The gospel of Jesus Christ is our motive for suffering courageously and joyfully and faithfully for our Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, Christ also suffered. That's the point. And all of that reminds us that all of Scripture is relevant to life. Sometimes we divide the Bible into doctrinal sections and practical sections, and there's there's some value in that. We can see that very clearly in some books in particular. Many of Paul's epistles have a section first that is dense with doctrinal truth, and then building upon that, he launches into practical exhortations for everyday living. But we need to realize that All of the Bible is relevant. All of it contains truth for everyday living. And even the everyday living always points us back to the doctrines of the Bible, particularly the doctrines that pertain to the person and work of Christ. That's the way the Bible is put together. The gospel is the answer to most of our problems. Our day-to-day problems, for which many times we want Practical solutions, how to do this, how to do that, help for this, help for that. Well, the Bible has many statements that will help us in a practical way in all of these areas. But really, none of these things will help us unless all of this is founded upon an understanding of the gospel and a review of the gospel and a focus upon the gospel and a greater study of the details of the gospel will go farther toward helping us in the practical areas of life than anything else we can do. Are you having trouble with your marriage? Learn more about the gospel. Are you having trouble with your children? Learn more about the gospel and preach more of the gospel to them. Are you having difficulty on your job? Then focus more upon the gospel. You say that doesn't make sense. That doesn't sound like a solution. I'm telling you, that is a solution. You need to understand that. Dislodge from your mind right now anything that would cause you to think, that's not going to help. That's not what I need. I need something else. Give me a how-to book. No, what you need is a what has already been done by Christ book. That will help you more than anything else that I, can, that I can point you to today. And Peter tells us that by the way he puts together these texts. Furthermore, he's teaching us that the gospel must be understood doctrinally, not simply emotionally. And that's the problem in our modern-day Christianity. So many times the gospel is dealt with at such a shallow level, such a surface level, that people don't really understand the details of it, the beauty of it, the depth of it, the, the implications of it. They don't really understand it doctrinally at all. They only understand it in an emotional way. And that won't help you much. But when you begin to understand the rich teaching, the rich doctrines that undergird the gospel, then you are going to find great help for your soul. And that will give you great help for your life day by day. 
And what we are seeing in the book of Peter is that there's much emphasis upon the Christian's suffering. Christians are going to suffer. That is opposite the teaching of the health and wealth practitioners in our day that teach us that if we follow Christ, trust God, find the right formula in the Bible, we can avoid suffering. That suffering is is not something that God wants His children to experience. That is utter nonsense and totally contrary to what the Bible teaches. Don't fall into a lie of the devil like that. Suffering is an appointed part of the Christian's life. That's actually contrary to much of modern evangelicalism, which even though in some cases, many cases, it wouldn't actually teach the tenets of the health and wealth gospel, nevertheless avoids the subject of suffering and implies by by what it fails to say that if we will follow Christ and and uh, live for Him, that we can avoid suffering and sorrow, that all of these things are are to be outside the realm of a Christian who is living a victorious Christian life. And again, that is so much nonsense. It's contrary to what the Bible says. We've got to get our doctrine from the Bible. And this emphasis upon suffering is certainly very much contrary to our own natural inclinations. Maybe that's the reason why so many of God's people are so willing to to uh, listen to the health and wealth practitioners or so willing to shut out of their minds the concept of suffering because, of course, we don't want to suffer. We don't like to suffer. We don't like the prospect of suffering coming to us in the future. But it is better, Peter tells us, if the will of God is so, to suffer. For Christ also suffered. And Christ, therefore, becomes an example of God-ordained suffering. Christ's suffering, obviously, is not contrary to God's will. And what we need to realize is that our suffering is not contrary to God's will either. Furthermore, Christ's suffering did not destroy Him. And our suffering as Christians will not destroy us either. In fact, it should be clear that Christ's suffering accomplished great good. And we need to understand that our suffering will also accomplish great good in the design and wisdom of God. And finally, we must remember that Christ's suffering resulted in great reward for Christ, great glory for Christ. And the Bible teaches us that it is exactly the same in our case, that our suffering also will usher forth in great reward and great glory. And so, therefore, dear friend, don't shrink from suffering, don't reject suffering, don't chafe at suffering, don't complain because of suffering, don't try to avoid suffering at any and every cost, but accept it as the will of God, embrace it, learn from it. Look for how God is using it for his good, for your good, and for his glory. But that brings us secondly to the reality that must be addressed. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Christ suffered once for sins. For sins. 
And that, it appears to me, is a missing ingredient in the modern gospel as it is often presented in our day. But this is part of the gospel. In fact, it is an integral part of the gospel. Why did Christ die? He died because of sin. Christ died, Christ suffered once for sins. Not his, ours, as we know. For he had no sin. He was the just one, suffering for unjust ones. So he was not suffering for his own sins. He was suffering for our sins. Because, as the Bible teaches us, sin it is that has alienated us from God. Separated us from God. Cut us off from God made us enemies to God, not his friends. Sin results in condemnation, in death, in eternal destruction, a destruction which never obliterates us, a destruction which destroys us eternally, forever and forever and forever without end. And sin it is that does this. Sin, we must understand, therefore, is an integral part of the gospel. You cannot really understand the gospel apart from sin. And what is sin? Well, sin is a transgression of the laws of God. 1 John 3, 4 tells us that. That whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. That is, sin is transgressing or violating the commands of God, what God has instructed us to do, what God has told us is his will for us and how we ought to live. Whenever we violate anything which God has told us, that by definition is sin. Sin at its very root is defiance of God's rightful rule. When we say God has said this, but I Choose to ignore it. I don't like it. I don't want to do it that way. I want to do it my own way. What we are really doing is saying, God, I reject your claim to having the right to rule over me. I reject your authority over my life. I reject your laws, your commandments, your instructions, your ways. I reject these. I may have considered them, but I don't care for them. And I'm going to do it my way instead of your way. I'm going to do it my way, which is greatly celebrated in the world in which we live. But that, you see, is the very essence of sin. The heart of sin is rebellion against God, our creator, against God, the sovereign ruler of the universe, against God, the one who has every right to rule us because God has made us and God provides for our lives. God provides everything that is necessary for us to live. Our very breath, the air we breathe, the food we eat, the water we drink, and everything that is necessary to nourish and sustain us upon the earth has all been provided by the gracious hand of God. He made us. He sustains us. And He is God, and He has the right to rule the universe that He created. And every time we sin, we are shaking our fist in the face of God and saying, we will not have you to rule over us. I will not submit to your rule. 
I will not bow. Like the Jews of old in, in the case of Christ. We will not have this man to reign over us. Don't say that he is the king of the Jews. We reject his claim to being a king. We are going to go our own way. That's what sin is. And sin is deeply ingrained in the fabric of our souls. And has been ever since Adam fell in the garden. When Adam, our representative head, the federal head of the human race, sinned in the garden, he not only brought the condemnation of sin upon himself and his posterity, but there was something that fundamentally changed in the nature of Adam and in all the little Adams and Eves that were born after that. There is a fundamental rebellion in the very fabric of our being that continually fights against the authority of God and does not want God to rule over us and therefore continues to sin. Furthermore, we need to understand that sin includes blindness, It blinds our eyes to reality, to truth, to the very truth that I'm talking about now. That sin includes with it deception. It causes us to believe a lie rather than the truth that comes to us from God. And thus sin causes us many times to deny the very thing that I'm talking about. To deny our sinfulness. To to deny our rebellion against God. To deny our hostility against God. To deny that we are enemies against God. We deceive ourselves into thinking that that's not so. That we don't have a quarrel with God. We we don't have any problem with God. God's fine where he is as long as he leaves me alone. I'm not going to bother him if he'll not bother me. We, We want him to help us when we have need and otherwise to pretty much leave us alone. And we think that because we're that way, that we're not in rebellion against God, failing to recognize that every time we transgress a commandment of God, we are evidencing our fundamental rebellion that's in our soul. And that's why repentance is a necessary component of salvation. Because repentance is a God-honoring response to our sin. No longer defending it, excusing it, minimizing it, rationalizing it, but owning it, acknowledging it, agreeing with God concerning it, and renouncing it. That's what repentance is. Repentance brings us to feel the weight of, of our sin and rebellion against God, which otherwise we will not feel. Repentance causes us to desire to be freed from the bondage of sin. When we realize what the nature of sin is and how it manifests itself in every act of disobedience against God, and when we realize that when we, on our own strength, try to reverse that, we are unable to do so. That sin is so intricately woven into the fabric of our soul that we can't just turn over a new leaf. We can't make a commitment. We can't just decide that we're not going to do that anymore. How many people have tried to do that? Only to find out that they're still bound by that sin. And all of the resolutions, all of the commitments, 
all of the assurances to the contrary, they still find themselves bound in sin. And repentance is recognizing that and desiring to be freed from the bondage of sin. Repentance is realizing our helplessness to deal with sin. To realize that we can't help ourselves in this condition. That we are sinners by birth and we are sinners by choice. And that there's not a thing that we can do to change that. Repentance, therefore, is to cast ourselves upon the mercy of Christ to deal with our sins for us, recognizing that we can't deal with them ourselves, recognizing that one greater than we are must come to our aid, must invade our lives, must change our heart, must break our sinful desires. We must repent and come to him. That hymn we sometimes sing, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, says in the third stanza, Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. That's it. What does it take to come to Christ? All the fitness he requires is to feel your need. Of him, to feel your sin, the weight of it, the destruction of it, the impossibility of it, to feel the awfulness of it, the heinousness of it in the face of a holy God, to, to feel the act of rebellion and how, how terrible that is that the creature should rebel against his creator and should throw back in the face of a kind and merciful God all of the good things that he has done for us and say, I will not bow to you. That's our sin. And to feel the weight of it, and therefore to feel our need of him, is the essence of repentance. Yes, the reality of sin must be addressed. Christ also suffered once for sins. And there's great danger in minimizing sin. There's danger in minimizing sin personally in our own reality, as I've already mentioned, (coughs) to generalize it, to marginalize it, as we often do, to generalize it. Well, I'm a sinner, but everybody is, so it's no big deal. Yes, everybody is, but it's a big, big deal. That's what's taking you straight to hell. That's what's separating you from your maker, the kind, benevolent, loving, heavenly father, and all of the blessings that he bestows upon those who come to him through Christ in repentance and faith. The thing that is separating you from all of that, the thing that is separating you from God, from life, real life, from heaven, from a restoration of your life to that which was created for man in the beginning with Adam before the fall, the thing that is separating you from all of this and many other blessings is your sin. It's a big deal. It's a huge deal. And our minimizing and generalizing and marginalizing our sins personally is what causes us to fail to recognize our need of Christ. Why are so many people... Unconverted, 
around the world today. You'll say, well, many of them have never heard of Christ, okay, which is true. That's not the issue for the moment, but let's narrow it. Why are so many people unconverted in the United States of America when many of them have heard of Christ? Well, it's because men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. They've heard of Christ, but they don't really want him. They don't feel their need of him. I'm just fine the way I am, thank you. They don't really feel their need of him. Their need has not been impressed deeply upon their soul by the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. They don't feel their need of him. And that's what Jesus was addressing when he said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Because actually there are no righteous, are there? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But there are a lot of people who think they're righteous. And they're not all called Pharisees either. Many of them are called Americans. And they think themselves perfectly righteous. That is, not perfectly righteous, not sinless, but righteous enough, good enough. They don't feel the weight of their sin. They don't feel the doom of their impending destruction. They don't feel their need of Him. And that's what happens when we minimize our sin. And that's why it is so dangerous to not deal with sin up front. That's why it's important that we emphasize sin in our preaching. When we don't do that, we fail to confront people with their need. Nobody embraces Christ until they feel their need of Him. And nobody feels their need of Christ until they feel the weight of their sin. And that's why the modern user-friendly, seeker-sensitive, non-offensive, popular approach to Christianity is not only unfortunate, it is damning souls to hell. So many times it's not what is said that is so wrong, it is what is never said. What is failed to be said. The gospel is not that Christ came to heal us of our hurts, our disappointments, our sadness, our frustrations, our failure to realize our full potential. That's not the gospel. Though it is true that when we come to Christ, when we understand the gospel and come to Christ, that the gospel and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts will indeed help us with all of these things. But that is not the gospel. The gospel is Christ died for our sins. That's the very definition at the, at the most minimal level of the gospel. Paul said, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. The gospel is Christ died for our sins. We don't understand the gospel. We don't believe the gospel. We haven't embraced the gospel until we have come to honestly accept God's verdict regarding our sins. The sin issue must be squarely faced and addressed. And that's why Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins. That brings me thirdly, therefore, to the substitution that is required. The just 
for the unjust. Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. And here is the great exchange. The just one, singular, in the place of the unjust ones, plural. Or the righteous one in the place of the unrighteous ones. We are sinful. He is righteous. We are sinners. He is not. We are repetitive sinners. And he has never sinned one time. He's perfectly sinless. Perfectly righteous. And therefore, the gospel contains the paradox of what we might call the unjust justice. The unjust justice. For it would seem, in a sense, that justice is violated in the gospel. Why? Because the just one suffers. Isn't that unjust? Why should the just one, who deserves no suffering, no penalty, no condemnation, why should he suffer? But he does. And the gospel is that for those who enter into Christ's suffering, the guilty ones go free. Again, that seems to be unjust. Why should the just ones suffer and the unjust ones, the guilty ones, go free? That seems to be justice violated. But what this truly is, is justice satisfied. The full penalty for sinners satisfied in the person of their qualified and willing substitute. And there's the key. There have actually been skeptics over the years who've found fault in the whole idea of God placing the penalty for man's sins upon Christ, because skeptics will find everything they can to criticize. And so there have been some that have criticized that on the basis of the fact that that's not just, that God would place the penalty for sin upon his sinless son? How could he do that? Well, if he placed it upon his son unwillingly, if Christ had that forced upon him, that would be unjust indeed. But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus Christ said, I will take that judgment. I will voluntarily take their penalty. And he's the only one who could. Because he's the only just one. God's holiness requires that justice be satisfied. God cannot unjustly pardon sinners. And again, because many people don't understand details of the gospel, they only understand it in terms of emotionalism, in terms of asking Jesus into my heart, without even really understanding who Jesus is and what he did and why. Then many Christian Americans think that God forgives sins just because he's a kind and loving God and he decided that that would be a nice thing to do. But the Bible tells us plainly he can't do that unless there's a just way to do it. God's holiness demands that justice be satisfied. God himself cannot pardon one sin apart from justice being satisfied. Why can't he do that? I thought God could do anything. Because to do that would be to violate his own character. And that's what God can never do. He can never violate his own character. That's what Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he that is God made him Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us, 
that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The same thing that Peter is telling us here. The great exchange. The great substitution. God's holiness requires that justice be satisfied. God himself cannot unjustly pardon sinners. That's why the songwriter wrote this. Tell me, ye who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends through fear his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him, none would interpose to save, but the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. The deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice, capital J, justice gave. The justice of Almighty God is what slew Christ upon the cross. God's love decreed that he himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, the incarnate Savior, would bear the demands of justice on behalf of guilty sinners. And that, dear friends, is the only hope for sinners. Sin renders men and women unable to please God. Sin renders men and women unable to free themselves from the shackles and bondage of sin. Sin renders men and women unable to to leave their sins and to go to Christ and to the righteousness which he has provided. Sin consigns men and women to a hopeless condition. But the substitutionary suffering of a qualified substitute, and there's only one who is qualified because there's only one who is sinless, The substitutionary suffering of a qualified substitute is our only hope. But what a great hope it is. It is the effective way of salvation. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Praise God. And this, dear friends, is why Jesus is the only way of salvation. I read a poll just recently, within the last two or three weeks, that something like 65% of people who identify themselves as evangelical Christians in America, not the ones who consider themselves liberals, mainline denominational Christians, but 65% of people who identify themselves as evangelical Christians do not believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Well, obviously, they don't believe much about Jesus, including what he said himself in John fourteen six, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. How can you call yourself a believer in Christ and not even believe what Christ said? Christ said, not I said. Christ said, not the preacher said. Christ said, not the evangelical religion says. Christ said, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. But you see, the reason why people don't understand that is because 
they don't understand much of the gospel. It's back to this problem of understanding the gospel at a superficial, shallow, emotional level. Instead of understanding the details, when you understand man's condition, man's sinful condition, his hopeless condition, his separation from God, and the only way that man can be reconciled to God is through a qualified sinless substitute, and the only one who is that qualified sinless substitute is God himself who stepped out of heaven into human flesh and died for sins, then what other possible way could there be to salvation? What other way could there be to heaven? What other way could there be to God except through the willing substitution of a qualified sacrifice? People don't understand that because in evangelical Christians, we haven't been preaching the gospel. What have we been doing? Telling stories? Making people feel good? Talking about how Jesus heals our hurts and our bruises and our sadness and helps us realize our full potential without ever understanding the real issues involved, the sin that must be addressed, and the substitution that is required. For those who do not understand the gospel, do not understand the necessity of Christ's vicarious atonement. But when you understand the gospel, you realize that not only is Jesus the only way because he said so, but Jesus is the only way because there's no other possibility. And so in the first half of our text for today, we learn some lessons about suffering. We are reminded that suffering is divinely appointed for every Christian. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 2.20, For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. And notice verse 21, For to this you were called. To this you were called. To what? Suffering. Unjust suffering. To this you were called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. To this you were called. That's what Paul tells us in Philippians 1.29. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It has been granted. It has been given to you by God. What has been given to you? Two things that this text tells us. Number one, the ability to believe on Christ. That was given to you by God. That's been granted. And number two, to suffer for his sake. That's been granted too. If you have been given the gift of faith to believe in Christ, you have also been given the gift of suffering for Christ's sake. You can't have one without the other. Suffering is designed by God to accomplish a greater good, like Christ's suffering. We see what greater good it accomplished. But suffering is also always for our own personal benefit. Don't forget Romans 8.28, all things. For we know that all things, not just the things that we label good, but all things are, and I've forgotten the text now, for we know that all things, 
What does it say? Work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. All things for our good. And we must remember that suffering leads to greater reward, to glory. No crown, no cross. When was the last time you heard that? That used to be a common saying among Christians. I said it backwards. No cross, no crown. No cross, no crown. We don't go to the cross the same way that Christ went to the cross, but Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. That's what it means to believe in Christ. To embrace suffering in whatever form God chooses to bring it to us. Take up your cross and follow me. And so we learn some lessons about the gospel in our text today. To believe in Christ is to become a follower of Christ. To follow Christ is to follow him in suffering. To follow Christ in suffering is to experience close fellowship with him. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Paul said, I want to know him in all of these ways. I want to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. We can't know Christ in close fellowship apart from joining him in the fellowship of his sufferings. But don't forget that to fellowship with Christ is to share in his eternal glory. Now, dear friends, what I have told you today is the gospel. Not the way it's usually presented, but a true presentation. It's not everything that can be said about the gospel. It's not the way that I would always present the gospel, but this is a true presentation of the gospel. By faith, we embrace Christ. And by faith, we embrace the suffering of Christ. And by faith, we embrace the unimaginable glory that awaits those who follow Christ. And therefore, I call upon those of you who are yet outside of Christ, turn from your sin, its rags, its trinkets, its deceptions, and go to Christ. Go to Christ for pardon. Go to Christ for cleansing. Go to Christ for life. Go to Christ as the only one who can deal with your sin problem that is dooming you to eternal condemnation. Does that mean that your life is going to be happy and carefree thereafter? No. In coming to Christ, you are embracing his sufferings, but it is more than worth it. Go to Christ who died once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Shall we pray? Oh, Heavenly Father, what a glorious gospel, what a glorious Savior. By your Spirit, drive these truths home to every heart. May your people rejoice in these truths and be strengthened in their faith in this greater understanding. And may all who are outside of Christ feel the weight of their sin and their need of Christ and gladly and quickly run to him without delay. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.